Hello. Welcome to the Dark Path Podcast. I've been very busy the last few weeks with my business and my business channel's posts, the Vancouver Dojo, the uh, 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 learning how to edit videos. It's been an interesting week. <laughs> so I got a little backlogged with the podcast posts, uh, but we're, uh, we're going strong now, so uh, things should be picking up in a bit. Definitely some interesting interviews coming up, so look out for that. Today I thought I want to chat about my career. And you know how if you chat with somebody long enough, eventually the topic will likely naturally turn to you know what you do for a living. And I believe that I'm lucky enough to have found a vocation that I love. Um, but of course, it is a very unusual path uh, to take. Um, teaching martial arts is definitely not something I chose to do intentionally until it kind of just happened. Um, now, it really is not something that most people know much about, and that's fine. Um, I, I do get uh, some odd questions here and there, um, and that's fine too. That's part of the fun. Um, what's not fun, and uh, part of the problem right now, um, in, in, a, in a bigger sense, but also in, in terms of my own life, uh, in, in the business, is that people are afraid of each other's faces. People are afraid to be close enough to touch one another. People are afraid to breathe near each other. Um, they're afraid of other things they shouldn't be afraid of either. Um, but, these, but these things of being near another person, looking them in the face, really interacting with them, right? When you, when you train, these are key components of training. It's, it's literally the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So it's, it's very problematic. So I end up never knowing exactly what, I mean, generally prior to the last few years, I never know exactly what the reaction might be when I say that I teach punching and kicking for a living is uh, when, I, when I talk to somebody, but it's, it's even more, it's somewhat more convoluted now, but I guess in a way it's also not. Anyway, over the years, I've learned to read the reactions of people pretty well, and I admit I will sometimes intentionally um, avoid discussing uh, what I do. Uh, my business, uh, mainly, mainly, so as not to confuse people or to get into unnecessary conversations <laughs> and, and especially allow uh, them to project any sort of misreading or misunderstanding of me uh, based on a prior bias of what they think martial arts are. Um, this is, you know, it's, it's everybody has to navigate these things. And so, you know, I have met others, many others, who have similar predicaments to deal with in terms of their jobs and careers. Um, although, of course, uh, usually in uh, radically different professions. Um, but I think... I think it's common enough that people sometimes struggle with that. Um, in particular, I had a student once who was uh, conducting some pretty rough um, scientific research experiments on animals. Uh, it took months for her to feel uh, comfortable enough to tell me that. Um, and it was obvious when she told me that the expectation was that I would be upset after hearing it. Which it I mean it was it was it was something to hear. Um, but more so she expected me to judge her for it and um, I didn't. 
I didn't. Um, rather, I, I wanted her to keep training, um, keep coming to classes. Because <laughs> um, I, saw, I saw the internal conflict she was uh, holding within herself when she confessed these uh, somewhat nasty aspects of her profession. Um, and as I said, I think many people have jobs where they know that some aspect of the job or some part of the overarching organization they're a part of is not great. And, and this causes, uh, it creates some amount of internal tension, internal questioning. And this can happen with like jobs where you know 99% of it is wonderful, but there's that one thing that's like, oh, I don't know if I, if I like that. And so that I don't, I don't think judging people for that is as part of life. Lots of jobs have uh, possibilities, at least within them, that are are pretty rough. So, so yeah, I I think that at least unless it's criminal behavior, um, that's what it is. So, for me, um, compassion. Um, is tied to this idea I have of an aim of a better world, and it, it would it, 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 it to me it seems like we should encourage people to work at rectifying their inner conflicts, and, and however that may be possible in any whatever context, um, but more importantly to uh, my mind in this discussion right now, um, it is an idea that is right at the heart of. Um, what I think is how to aim at a better world. So, for example, like I can dislike the work that this person was doing, um, but that, but I still want to help them. Um, I can dislike a person politically, person's political and um, um, philosophical outlook, um, but I can even I can do that. But I can still like that person as a person. Um, for myself, I, I generally can get along with uh, pretty much anybody, so long as they allow me to be. They don't try to interfere unnecessarily in my life. That's kind of the thing that bothers me the most. Um, but I think that that really is the basis of the social contract, and, and I don't think that that really would be controversial. But it is astonishing uh, to me to see how people right now are foregoing the responsibilities of the social contract um, and willingly, um, you know, intentionally dogpiling on the new cultural pariahs, which is, of course, the unvaccinated. I mean, this behavior, it's abhorrent, but it is the result of what fear and weakness does to the mind. So it's not, it's not like this has never happened before. It, it's just sort of seeing it play out it's crazy. Now, um, again, so in, in, in aiming at a better world for me, um, this uh, it's important that a, you can dislike what what I would say is you can dislike a noun. You know, you can dislike a person, a place, or a thing, um, but that should not affect your overall sense of humanity. And definitely, uh, just disliking something should not be used as a, a way to validate harsh. Um, and even cruel actions against the nouns, the people, place, or things that you might dislike. Um, 
I think, I, I think that is the point of having a moral code. Moral codes are the fabric that weaves society together, right? Uh, um, but this, this, this disconnect from the things you don't like and then the greater uh, overarching expression of justice in this society, um, well, justice is blind for a reason. And, and, and that, those are important reasons. So you don't attack things just because you don't like them in that way. And of course, this is born out of the out of the idea we know that revenge is is, is like a fire. You know, the desire uh, it grows quickly out of control at every opportunity, and it burns everybody, the good, the person that lit it, and others. So now um, back to the story about the former student. I would have been okay with it if, through training and self-reflection, she had changed careers. Um, but that was not to be the case. For her, training was a minor blimp on her life's path. For me, martial art training um, has proven to be the paving stones upon which my path is built. It's interesting too, I always reflect on how that, I didn't mean to do that. Um, it just took my attention. Um, now, I, I thought I would share a quick bit about my background in, uh, in that regard, in terms of my relationship to martial arts. So I, I tend to believe that my relationship with the martial arts started when I was, was a kid. I mean, for so many kids, I think the seed for that gets planted um, at a very early age um, in how uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a fascination in, uh, with superheroes, characters. Um, usually, usually um, you know, whatever cartoon you can sort of happen to be watching. Uh, particularly, I remember um, being mesmerized at a very young age by the cartoon character called He-Man. And uh, He-Man had this, uh, he, you know, it was an interesting show. He had two, two sides to his character and one side of him would come forth as the great warrior and he would draw this sword and he would hold it up to the sky and he would say, um, I have the power. And um, lightning would strike the sword and then he would become supercharged and he would ride a tiger. He'd ride a tiger into battle. So, I mean, you know, how is that not cool? But he, but he said, you know, like, I have the power. What, what does he mean by, why is that fascinating? Even to a little kid, why is it, I want my power, I want to express power? Um, there's something to that, that, that calls to people, I think. As I, I mean, I think that the, the warrior archetype is, is part of the archetypal structures. Of, of, of the collective consciousness so it's a part of everybody in a way um, and, uh, anyway in, in any case um, uh, I do remember I do remember copying He-Man with my own sword usually made from cardboard or simply imagination um, and again like nobody nobody told me to do that it just caught my attention and I couldn't I couldn't help but respond so the next element is like, despite you know being um, drawn to these superhero themes, um, I was actually a pretty shy kid for the most part. 
Um, I ended up getting bullied as a consequence. And because of that, I ended up um, joining a boxing gym when I was maybe 12 or 13. It was actually my dad's idea and um, something I'll always, always, always be grateful to him for because it was a great idea. And it, um, amongst other things, got me to have spent time with my grandfather because it was a complicated sort of uh, uh, driving to and fro thing for my parents to work out. So anyway, um, I, was, I was 12 or 13 years old and the boxing club changed my world, changed my life forever. Um, it showed me I could stand up for myself um, and the bullying ended up stopping in a fairly dramatic fashion because of that, which was, which was interesting. Um, but it also showed me, and I want to talk about this in other podcasts in a different way, is that through um, high-intensity cardio exercise, um, I could beat back my chronic childhood asthma. And that was, that was eye-opening, to say the least. Now, since then, um, some amount of martial art skills and training has continued throughout my life. Um, I wasn't always training at a dojo, but I always kept training, uh, basically. Uh, the boxing uh, lasted a couple years, and then I jumped into um, kickboxing for about another year. And then in my late teens, uh, joined a karate club, uh, Gojuru Karate specifically. Um, in my mid-twenties, I met a new karate teacher and began training in Tai Chi Chuan. And um, then down the road a ways, uh, in my thirties, I began uh, a serious study of Daito Ru as well. Um, I continue to practice all these arts to this very day. Um, and I, I hope to do so until I die. <laughs> um, but all along, I have had the sense that there was something uh, going on with these practices that went beyond uh, just the, the obvious um, physical and um, mental, men mental health benefits. Uh, not that those benefits are minor or trivial or anyway, they're, they're profound and they're uh, on their own. Um, but it, it, seemed, it seemed to me, and it still does, that these arts are somehow threaded um, into the fabric of life itself. But, but, if, but you know, how, how can uh, arts of, that are based on the science of struggle and, and, and combat and war be so profoundly entwined with the ways of like, life and existence, um, and ultimately the ways of peace? Well, it's, it, it seems to me that there, that there always has been struggling to survive in, in life's existence. But in that struggle, life has gathered all of its strength. So the relationship between struggling and surviving, it, it may not be as antagonistic um, as it seems. Now, I can only encourage, really encourage people to try training um, at, a, at a dojo or a, a martial arts gym to find out for yourself if 
this has any validity to it or not. Uh, there are, of course, countless dojos and gyms throughout the world. Um, and, you know, while not all, all, not all training is equal, um, if, if one is genuinely seeking for it, um, they usually can find a, uh, a teacher near them that's worth learning from. Especially if you're new, then it's good to try a couple things and, and see what works. But, um, it, you know, even if there's no place near you, you can move. There's, there's, there's people out there trying to teach these arts if you're interested in learning them. That's the point. Now, um, there, there's also an old saying that uh, when the student is ready, a teacher will appear or emerge. And I would say that such a student who is genuinely seeking should be ready as best they can uh, without a teacher. And in just any situation, they're just as ready as they, they're doing as best they can. And that sense of readiness, um, it's tied to the same basic impulse that just underlies life. It's the, it's the drive to stay alive. It's, I'm ready to act at any moment sort of thing. Now, I'm going to get a little bit more esoteric with it. It is the, possibly the source energy for motivation required on all challenges, um, especially challenges conjured up by the unknown, which make uh, decision-making extra convoluted. The reason I say this is because it's not a conscious thought. It's just an impulse to act. There's a readiness. I'm ready to act if I need to. And so if you're ready and the teacher appears, you can learn. Now, whether you're a single-celled amoeba or a giraffe, in order to survive, you do always need to be ready to move, to act, to follow the impulses of your instincts um, at all times. Um, so these most basic impulses are inseparable from life. But the teacher's looking for the student who is showing they're ready their energy is seeking for knowledge in that time. Now, to me, one of the great wonders of the impossible reality we exist in can be seen in how life somehow wants to live in, in, of, of its own accord. Like it, no life ever seeks its own end. And, and, that's, and it wants to stay alive despite all the costs. It's willing to do anything to continue to stay alive. That's amazing. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Beyond that, it, given a chance, life always seems to seek to thrive as well. Now in this, on a personal level, I hear a, a quiet but steady encouragement seemingly coming right out of the universe or reality itself, sort of pushing ahead and saying, never give up, keep pushing, keep going. So it seems like life itself knows its own value in some inexplicable way or some way that's difficult for the human mind to fully encapsulate. So this leads me to an assumption that life itself is actually the most valuable thing possible. Uh, value is, of course, a complex idea. I was recently talking with Justin Nearing about uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency, but just also about currency and value. And so value is a very complex idea. But for me, the greatest value could never be units of measurement, money, or objects, or um, stuff. 
Uh, and I don't mean that to, to put down those things because those things can add great value to the life in, in, if they're sort of integrated in the right way. And that's great. But, you know, without being alive and also without other living people to share it with, you know, you have nothing. There's nothing. Now, um, this all matters to me because how a person sees reality in the... How a person... Uh, this matters to me because how a person sees reality is the basis of how they will act in the world. If something other than life is placed at the top of their hierarchy of values, it means life isn't their top concern. It means a disregard for human life, including their own, or other life in general, is inevitable. This, you know, obviously cannot lead to desirable behavior. Worse, right now, I would say for society, is it seems like a very dangerous thing for civilization to do, which I think we're doing. We're taking the value of life out of the center place of our focus as a society. And by not placing a conscious acknowledgement of life's sacred value at the forefront of our lives and society, well, the path that follows such decisions is dark indeed. So what I am doing is um, trying to point at the idea of life's existence being first and foremost the center of focus in the creation of value in the world. And however value concepts are created. Um, you know, we know, but by nature, life is temporal, it's fragile, it's easily disrupted. And it literally requires constant work to upkeep. So, you know, it, it takes a full commitment to realize its potential. But since the drive to stay alive is born out of the oldest and deepest um, layers of ourselves, the, the, the placement of the idea of, 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 of life being the, the main value into the center of our conscious awareness, it should lead to great joy if there's no skeletons in the basement. In the, in the closet, I guess, to speak of. Meaning, it should align those energies. Um, so, um, it means that, the idea is that aligning one's basic instincts for survival with uh, a consciously crafted, a consciously worked out conceptualization of values um, represents a kind of integration of those parts of the self. This makes it both sustainable um, as, a, as an exercise to, to, to harmonize these parts and as a way of increasing the value of of the life a person of the given life a person is living at the moment as well so it increases the experience of the life as well as the long-term sustainability of the life of life in general um, now through that lens of, of, of putting life at the center focus of value 
um, things that of course promote and enhance life are emphasized and we would might call them self-care exercises or self-preservation I guess um, and things that hurt or destroy life are resisted and life teaches us that that resistance can come without reserve without hold back if necessary and then you call that self-defense now to my mind um, this framework it's a very simplistic framework, really, but it can be overlaid onto Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, um, even shamanistic traditions, and and you know basically any belief structure is is going to inherently have to do this to some degree. Because however however God or the divine or the spirit world might be conceptualized, um, the value of the gift of being alive. Um, you know, it has to be the, the greatest and most glorious gift possible. I can't imagine anything else that would really take away from that. Um, so, if it can be said, then, that this, this, this spark, this impulse that ignites the eyes and separates, uh, or what would you could say could, is able to separate a living body from a dead one, is a gift or it can be thought of as a gift anyways, I think that's a good idea, of, of, of the most profoundly divine source imaginable. So, what does that mean? <laughs> how, how does that relate to martial arts? Um, and, and to living in general, and to just everything that we've been talking about in this podcast. Well, I've been building towards something, maybe, that, maybe, something, that... So, how about this? It's, it's the case that the spark which, if it's the case, if it's the case that the spark which animates all life is the same source energy as the impulse all creatures have to stay alive, those things are the same, maybe then it's also the same energetic source that inspires human beings to achieve the things we call art and technology and other wonders. What if, what if these things were either could be aligned or they're all stemming from the same source? So at the base level, this impulse, this, this spark, um, this is simply called survival, the, 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 the impulse to stay alive, to survive. But what does that mean for humans? And as I have said in previous podcasts, and I want to come back to you, um, you know, once in a while, is uh, survival isn't enough for the human creature to achieve their potential. You know, you can't show an adult human being that's just alive and say they've achieved their potential. They need to do something more than that. Now, this is important because it connects, um, it's attempting to connect uh, survival to higher potentials. Or, or you could say base instincts to what might be called like higher cognitive functions. Especially, I find it interesting that you might be able to draw a line between the readiness and, 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 and impulse to stay alive and artistic expression if those energies are connected. Well, the implications of that are very interesting. Now, if life is then set on the highest place on the sort of altar of meaning and, and, and value in the world, um, it means then it, it, it can be used as a central focus or aim and a person can then begin to align their base instincts 
uh, ideally, and their sense of intuition and their higher calling. Um, and then, you know, as, as I just sort of said, like these seemingly like disconnected aspects of, of a person's self can, can become more focused and balanced and harmonized together. Um, and the person can become more whole. Um, and I think that this is important because, because that's what the sense of inner peace is, is when the various expressions of the self are aligned and comfortable within their place in the world, so to speak. Now, for this to happen, um, it's known by psychologists and philosophers alike that human beings need to have a working and satisfactory belief system when facing the world. Um, so that harmonization is coming from this belief, uh, a belief system. It is, of course, both the gift and curse of the mind that, to be at peace, we humans need that. We need a perspective that that can account for reality and our place within it. Um, now, there are many um, beliefs and religions in the world, and I, I have respect for pretty, well, let's say 99% of the ones that I've ever seen. There's some goofy ones out there, but um, the main ones, of course, I have tremendous respect for. Um, I think that all of the, I think a tradition exists because it has to then, it wouldn't exist, I should say, if it didn't contain profound and worthwhile knowledge. And, and, and you know, it's worth taking a serious look at any of them if you're called to do so, or just if you're curious, it's, it's worthwhile. <laughs> um, but the question comes back for each of us, regardless if you have a religious affiliation or not, what is at the center of your belief system? What is your highest value? If it's not your life, then how do you justify that? I mean, if it's not life in general, I should say. it's How do you justify that? If there's something in place of the value of life in your hierarchy of values, what, what is it? Now, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that everything one does is, down, is a downstream... Everything one does in life is a downstream consequence of the answer to those questions. And I don't think this idea is particularly hard to understand when put into a more direct sort of context. I mean, no amount of money is worth your life, right? I mean, I'll give you $20 billion tomorrow if you, you know, if you don't sleep through the night. Like, what? Like, what? No one would want that. Um, and it just so happens that this um, conception of value is uh, of life being the greatest value is also I think the most fundamental and key key presupposition of the martial arts so I remember um, I once asked my karate sensei about the roots of the use of what's called a bow staff which is a six foot long pole weapon uh, it's used in quite a few martial art traditions um, throughout Japan, Japan and China and Okinawa. Uh, my training with that weapon comes mainly through um, w w we can just say an Okinawan tradition called Kabuto. Um, now for the most part through the roots of much of the traditional um, Okinawan arts, um, traditional martial arts of uh, you know, karate and Kabuto um, can be traced to southern Chinese systems. 
But I, um, I was thinking, I, I wanted to know where they had learned their knowledge from, the, 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 the ancestors to the, the in Okinawan arts. So um, I decided to chase the idea, and I chased it for some time. <laughs> um, researching and looking up things and reading and thinking. Before I realized, though, that really the first handheld weapon technique ever discovered would likely be with a piece of wood, maybe a rock, but a piece of wood. And um, that technique would have possibly been taught. I mean, that would have to go back to one of our very early human ancestors who was able to, ancestors, who was able to um, put together in their mind and understand somehow to some rudimentary level anyways that hitting with a stick um, was very effective but I would assume that that would also give them the idea that getting hit by the same stick is very very undesirable so it stands to reason then that um, a, like a parental figure let's say who is able to discern this insight to make sense of this um, would likely want to pass on the knowledge to their to their kids to their offspring and a um, a tradition could emerge. Now, this process, um, obviously, I think, would mirror all cultural development, um, and and so it's possible the martial arts skills might have been a part of um, the formation and creation of human society, um, and in some way, um, they are a part of us and have been for as long as we have been human. Now, um, it's interesting to think about that too because it, it, it would take many, many generations. Um, but, you know, I can imagine then a catalog of skills can be built. And that's really the beginning of a system. And this can go all the way back to thousands of years ago. And it seems right at the heart of human society because um, these martial skills would have been intertwined with hunting skills um, and uh, as well as providing uh, for a more safer and more controlled social environment for the for the group um, a lot of advantages not only that but the efforts it would take um, in building and maintaining such a system um, to do that um, could only make sense to people who uh, they who themselves um, uh, thought carefully about the future and themselves. So the the skills of passing on early martial techniques um, would have been clearly clearly beneficial in a you know direct physical uh, way a direct way, but I have a whole. I really wonder about this because the, the mental tools required to maintain a large knowledge base in that context would um, would also encourage many important cognitive abilities. Um, memory, of course, uh, learning um, processes, understanding process in general, um, be able to plan. Um, all of these are important examples of the types of skills 
required to develop what would be then in that case a multi-generational martial art and and so much could be carried on the back of that transfer of knowledge too um, behavioral ideas uh, cultural ideas religious ideas they can all be integrated into training and i think that they were for a lot of early cultures so i think it's reasonable to estimate that martial arts are a genuinely important part of human evolution and you know it's that's a part that's possibly not studied enough um, and it might be kind of fun to study. Now, I actually believe um, the martial arts hold a key within them that might be very helpful in, in at least trying and in, 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 in assisting in providing a way to redirect the energy behind um, the violence in human behavior. Um, both in a general and a specific way, or general and a more uh, individual way. Um, and not just externalized forms of violence, um, but also, critically, um, because of the ability of the arts to work at these internal conflicts, um, it has the possibility of addressing some of the internal struggles that are causing self-harming behaviors in people and society uh, at this time, which is... Uh, Unfortunately, a very real problem um, and seems to be growing. One um, example would be uh, suicide, which is definitely a significant issue these days, particularly, uh, you know, in, in younger people in, in many ways. Um, here in BC and, and throughout the world, too, I don't want to take away from anybody, but definitely here in BC, it's been crazy and horrible amount of drug overdoses. And they're killing so, so many people. And... Both of these things um, are terrible and unfortunate, but they're also examples of things that are born out of internal struggles where a person seeks to alleviate those struggles by drugs or other things, you know, drugs are a bullet. And of course that doesn't solve the problem, but that's, that's the impulse. It's gone in the wrong direction. Now those are only two examples, but... Um, but it's important to remember, too, that in any case, life, life still just wants to live. So no, you know, no drug addict ever began using because they wanted to destroy their body and destroy their relationships and end up homeless and desperate enough and do terrible things for survival. They were seeking something. And um, in real desperation which many people don't know, but if you, if you, did, you should know, is in real desperation, um, anything that offers any amount of hope um, or escape or, or, or peace or, 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 or calmness even, even just for a moment, even just for a moment, is, is usually then grasped as tightly as it can. Um, this, is, this tends to be made worse if... Um, the person feeling that sense of desperation has no sense of self and no sense of purpose to fall back on, no sense of role in the community to fall back on. So this is... This, these, these escape routes are, are the blue pill, so to speak, uh, because they don't offer no solutions. They're only as... They're only at best escapes, minor escapes and harmful escapes in terms of some... You know, like drugs or some drugs, anyways, um, quite damaging. Um, not all drugs. 
Now, this is most likely a key reason why some people um, cannot let go of masks, even if they're outside and alone, and, and other useless nonsense um, in that same way. There's a desire to grasp desperately at anything that um, can even sort of pretend to offer some security um, in, a, in, a, in a moment of fear and doubt and desperation. There's that desire, whatever, whatever, whatever works. And this is, in many ways, the Achilles heel for all sentient beings, which means like all, like, you know, rabbits and, 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 and orcas and, and, and everything. That, that impulse is there to grasp anything in a moment of desperation that you can. Now, in fact, it seems right now that the way that COVID has broken down society is actually a massively clear example of this. Fear begets desperation. So it's, things are rooted in the fear, but the desperation is sort of how they're playing out. And then when led by blinded and ideologically compromised people with who they themselves have no real sense of self or purpose or greater picture purpose, um, you know, society cannot do anything but spiral down a very dark hole. And I don't think it's controversial to say that there are no solutions in escapism. Just like there are no solutions in uh, or usefulness in, um, in doubling down on ineffective policies, which seems to be the way of the world right now. So, so whether it's uh, all the unfortunate stuff, drug abuse or suicide or mental illness or people mindlessly obeying nonsensical government uh, diktats about health and whatever, um, the roots of these behaviors are coming from places of internal conflict uh, and, and because they're mainly escapisms, deflections from the issues, um, they were, those issues will remain um, unresolved. Um, and, 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 and in terms of the personal individual issues, um, they will remain unresolved until the the individual person is willing to do the hard work it takes to work through them. And then I, my hope is that enough people overall to do that and then like society can actually move forward. That's, that's the hope. Now, the outcome of having internal struggles go unresolved is dangerous. It, it always either ends up in violence or disease. Um, kind of a moderate example, but... A, a, be like eating garbage food, fast food, smoking, drinking, cheap beer um, all the time. Um, all these things can, can contribute to a heart attack. Uh, that is an example of sort of um, an infliction of violence on the self in a certain way. Um, I mean, a massive the massive damage done by a heart attack is a physical outcome that is in a sense violence in that sense, but it's it's done through the internal disconnect or conflict that the person who developed those habits wasn't dealing with there's something going on there so what what then would cause a person to consume um really terrible you know known terrible food and drink and, and, and become very unhealthy and not do anything about that um you know it's hard to think a person in that situation um doesn't have self-valuation and self-worth issues at the roots of that entire lifestyle. So they're not putting the value of life at the center of their focus and they're, 
not being honest with themselves. That's an internal conflict about their health as it declines. Now, in terms of violence, it can actually be said that all acts of violence, in turning, you know, including the most important one, well, no, just including the most obvious, I guess, would be the externalized violence towards others. They all, they all can be said to start with internal conflicts of the person who's expressing them. Um, but that's, that's actually another podcast topic I want to, to touch into eventually. And of course, violence, like that word is often misused by people these days who cannot seem to really fathom the reality of violence um, in a real way. And, 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 you know, say things as ridiculous as that words themselves are violence. And, you know, just basically what they're saying is like, you know, if I feel fr afraid for any reason, that means it's violence. And, you know, that's just, you know, it's, that's really terrible and dangerous to a certain degree. Anyway, it seems that the, it seems then to come back to the topic of the, of the moment that the foundation of life is a drive to stay alive. That At the foundation of life, anyways, is this drive to stay alive. And that drive is the same as in humans as it is in all life. Um, now, I have then suggested that the energy behind that drive comes from the same source as the energy that drives us to achieve um, our highest potentials, even in things as abstract as art. So... The drive to evade a predator that has been around for millennia, millennia's, um, I'm saying it's connected in the schema I am using to the drive that pushes us to create beautiful music or further, uh, uh, you know, some abstract mathematical theory. Um, so this may be the case, but the desire to succeed to survive and succeed is often not met with the actual success being desired, right? Just because you want to live doesn't mean you will. Just because an animal tries to, you know, acquire a territory doesn't mean it will. Um, now, partly this is for human beings because we are, especially right now at this time in history, constantly, constantly sabotaging ourselves with terrible false beliefs about life and ourselves and our abilities. Um, but this is also partly because since life began, there has always been conflict. It's, it's why it's called a drive to stay alive. This drive to stay alive has always been met with intense pushback. Life eats life. And as, uh, as the brilliant Bantool says, um, this is necessary. Now... For most species, um, you know, for almost all species, as far as we can tell, really, there's no concern um, over why, or the why and the what, in terms of the motivation for their lives. They simply strive to continue to exist uh, without any uh, uh, concern or sense of self-reflecting, uh, weighing them down. Um, I think that's kind of why we like animals, actually. <laughs> that's one of the reasons. Now, for us in these... For us, these, uh, these things, these, these reflective contemplations are critical and must be balanced in order to achieve, to stay alive, but also to any success that we might be seeking. And that could be just the success of a reasonable society. But before, so think of it this way, like before one could enter a battle without, with, with any possibility of surviving, which there's never a guarantee, but... 
what you know possibilities. There's a need to know who are they fighting for and why, and who are they, um, which is to say some amount of self knowledge, some amount of self knowledge, um, including how they would fit into the bigger picture. Now, um, if these things were not clear, then one can basically safely assume they are, they're just cannon fodder. In contrast, the person who could answer these questions clearly, who they are, where they're there, who they're serving, all of these things, um, they would gain a great advantage in the battle and the battlefield um, because they would not be in conflict within themselves. Uh, this, this means they could then pour all of their abilities and their focus, and their attention into the situation at hand. Now, um, this idea of pouring all of yourself into the moment that you're in is in many ways the pinnacle of martial prowess. The attainment of uh, such a clear, such, such clear clarity and presence that anything that is offered is, is thrown at a person in such a state of mind um, could be a punch, or it could be um, someone trying to convince them to feel terrible about themselves, that these things are easily refuted. Such a state of mind, such a, an ability, such a person expressing themselves this way is very possible. Try imagining, or imagine the, the idea that you have the ability to control your emotions well enough. Um, let's say, for instance, you can never be sucked into an ad or a politician's nauseant but carefully crafted, crafted whining, which is really all they do. Imagine the new power that that would give you if none of these things affected you. And, I, and I, I, I'm suggesting that all it takes is a little bit of awareness to start that process. And then, like a wave gathering momentum, a mind that can be free of all distraction cannot easily be stopped. Now, this was true for the warrior on the ancient battlefield or the, even the modern battlefield. It's true um, for the person today, right now, who's going to commit themselves to a business they create in a, um, in a in sort of a lighter way. It's true for a person who just wants to win a foot race with their friends. If they can just focus clearly on what they're doing, they're going to have the best chance of that anyways. And I would, I would encourage especially that it's true for um, all of the brave people, all the brave souls out there who can see the, the, the wild insanity of the world right now and are fighting for a more honest and better world. Um, keep your mind clear. Now, this needs to be monitored, right? You, you have to sort of have a way to monitor this. And in the martial arts, the relationship to one's own clarity and peace of mind is maintained through training, which is, again, why I tend to focus so much on that idea with people, uh, at least with people training in the dojo. Keep training. Um, so the, the expression of a kata, which is a prearranged sequence of movements, or even a single technique, a throw or something, can act as a mirror uh, to the practitioner, which shows them how clear and focused they really are.
Um, now, this is the art part of martial arts. There's no perfection, it's just a process. Now, the same idea of a mirror reflecting to a practitioner through their expressions um, exists, I think, in any form of art. But um, I, like to, I like to kind of you know, smile and point out that uh, only in the martial arts is the point of the artistic exercise literally also an act of embodied self-defense. So the practical and the artistic abstract value really comes together. Um, yeah, so to recap, um, so, so once the basics are met, food, exercise, and sleep, um, then um, to get clarity, to get peace, to, 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 to come into alignment, um, self-awareness and a questioning of who one really is um, ought to follow. Um, and then, you know, an exploration of what one's morals really are is, is important to, to, to think about as well. Think about, you know, where you sit in society and the world at large, what's going on. These questions, they, they do need to be addressed, um, be, partly only because then can a person be at peace and, and, and as I said, have a, have a belief system that makes sense for them. So this is, a, this is kind of an internal work. Figure out who you are, what you're doing, to some enough degree that you can confidently face the world with your face. Um, I, this is what I believe Jordan Peterson means when he says to clean up your room. Um, I'd be happy to discuss that if I'm wrong or right. Um, now, the result of working at this is that once you're actually at peace within yourself to a solid enough degree, then you're ready to deal with combat, with war, with conflict. Um, and that's interesting because that's the answer to the riddle of how the arts, the martial arts, which are, you know, based on the knowledge of, of conflict and battle and war, um, how they can cultivate peace. It's, to me, a kind of proof of the value of the wisdom of these arts. And it, it, it represents a realigning and balancing, a rebalancing of a seemingly paradoxical phenomenon. Um, you could put it this way, like, that life is best protected, the value of life is best protected by those with the greatest knowledge of violence and death, so long as those who are protecting it maintain their love of life and love of peace. And that remains clear. Yeah. Now, this whole thing is a process. It's an art. It's a process. And of course, um, it's not one that ends, although um, people will inevitably end. The process continues, and it's how you touch into to real legacy, what it really means to, to leave something behind. Now, it can be, it can all be done with simple awareness. Uh, you can just do it with, at least you can get the process rolling with just some simple breathing, um, with walking, in the, especially in a park or a forest. Uh, and, and noticing the beauty in a tree. Anything that pulls you back to a recognition of the value of life and the wonder of life and the beauty of life. Um, then, through time and effort, um, internal conflicts will come forth. They'll, they'll naturally come out when you start to develop some practice. Um, your self-doubts will be seen. But they can be dismissed. And the false fears, they can be transcended. 
then everyone has a chance to know peace in, internally in themselves. And from there, well, you know, who knows? But it can only be your choice, yours alone, to walk that path and find that peace. And it will mean that you will have to walk even in the dark part of the path. The dark path is part of the process. But there's one thing for sure you can know is you're not alone. Now, um, I'm going to start to mention this once in a while at the end of podcasts, uh, especially when I'm, it's, it's just me on the podcast. Um, but anybody who might be interested, um, I do run online Qigong classes twice a week where I explore some simple, great exercises for breathing, for blood flow, for mental clarity, for um, um, awareness in various ways. Definitely help you through your day. It's, it's just a lunch, lunch thing from 12 noon. Um, I'll put a link at the bottom of the post. Now, I, I have much, much yet to say about life and martial arts and strategies and health and more and more, you know, more, more people to talk to, more really interesting people to talk to. But I think that's enough for now. Um, please um, let me know your comments and questions, your thoughts. Um, you can write them below. I'd be happy to hear from you. So, thank you uh, again for your um, time spent with me today, and um, I'll see you again on the dark path.